live the Jesus life. How we actually embody the truth. Uh, not just how we articulate it. Something's sinking here, but that sinking feeling. The microphone's dying. So, so I offered you uh, these three thoughts around discipleship. What is discipleship? Um, and we kind of looked at this last time a little bit. Um, I started with the idea that discipleship is a transforming friendship. We're going to return to that theme a bit tonight. Um, because to me it's a really, really important and significant uh, starting place for thinking about discipleship. And I'm going to say more about that. So a transforming friendship with Jesus. It's about a lifelong apprenticeship. It's, 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 it's supposed to change us in order that our lives reflect more of Christ into his world. And it's therefore about an effect that our lives should have on the world. It's a world-changing partnership. It's about being salt and light, to use some of Jesus' own metaphors. So I finally, last week, suggested that there were four themes, four core themes that we need to pay attention to if we're going to live this kind of life. If we're going to pursue discipleship that, that covers those three themes, we need some guide, guidelines, some, some bearings. And I suggested this, this, these are the things we're going to think about uh, tonight and the next two sessions as well. Um, this, this way of life, which is framed around a deepening relationship. If, if, if discipleship is about a relationship, then that relationship is the primary thing to pay attention to and not to get distracted from. So it's about a way of life that's about seeking growth in God's love. It's about a way of life that embraces the spiritual disciplines as a means to grow in God's love. It's a way of life which is expressed every day wherever we are, not just when the church organises mission events, but it's, it's an, a continual overflow of the life that we're receiving. And it's a way of life that cannot be lived independently of other people who are also living the life. It's a life that's held together in some kinds of particular relationships that enable that life to emerge and when it struggles to continue to grow. So those are very simple things. Um, there's, no, there's no theological rocket science in, in, in what I'm proposing. But if you remember my little joke, or my attempt at a joke, it's my only joke, so I can't start this week with a joke, because I told you my joke last week. <laughs> but if you were here, and you remember the starboard uh, right, port left, starboard right, port left <laughs> uh, thing. But this is what we're paying attention to um, in, in these, these sessions together. And, and what I want to do tonight is to look at the first two of those things in a little more depth and to encourage you to discuss them a bit. And we'll have a bit of feedback on that. And then next time we're going to look at the idea of everyday mission. And then finally, and crucially, we're going to look at that kind of central holding piece, which is the nature of the relationships that we need to have together to make this life work. So that's kind of where we're going for the next few sessions. If you want to reorder what you're doing with the next few Wednesday evenings, you now know which ones to reorder. So I want to think about this idea of longing for more of God. This idea of a transforming relationship that deepens and grows. We know that all the closest relationships should naturally deepen and grow. They're not static things. Relationships, by definition, are not static things. They change. Um, now, some of you are dyed-in-the-wool Baptists. Um, some of you just happen to attend a Baptist church. Um, so some of you may or may not have heard of this man, Alexander McLaren. Um, he looks a bit like... Um, what's his name? Melky. <laughs> doesn't get you like Melky. Uh, who am I thinking of? George Muller, on a bad day. Um, Alexander McLaren, he, he was a, a, a statesman of the Baptist movement just over 100 years ago. The interesting thing about Alexander McLaren is that his ministry almost directly shadowed Queen Victoria's reign. So he was a minister whilst the Victorians were doing their thing in the middle to late 19th century and on into the very, very, very first year or so of the 20th century. If you know anything about that period of history in this country, in terms of what the church was up to, you'll know that during that period, the church was probably more socially engaged than at any other point in its history. The church was reaching out into all kinds of good causes to try and to transform culture, to try and transform society. 
There are societies set up for just about every good cause you can think of. For orphans, for children, for widows, for bodies that were found in Bristol docks to give them a decent burial, for people in Bristol that were too cold to make sure they had a blanket in the winter. There, there were good causes set up. There was Spurgeon's Homes. There was the Salvation Army. There was, there was cause after cause after cause. If you want an example of when the church tried to engage with culture and society, look at what the Victorian church was up to, because it was remarkable in its activism in trying to be what today we might call missioning. They didn't have that word then, but, but to, to do mission to its society. Churches in the main were growing. There was an expectation that growth would continue. That's why we have so many churches that were built towards the end of the Victorian era because there was a trajectory which they assumed would just keep going, even though, in fact, many of them were never full. There was an expectation they would fill. And the high peak of church going in this country was around the 1880s. We think decline is recent. In fact, the decline, barring a few blips, has been pretty constant since the 1880s. Now, McLaren was a significant figure in the Baptist movement during that era. And in 1902, when he was about to retire, he was invited to address the Baptist Conference in Edinburgh as the senior statesman of the movement who'd been there, seen it all, and got the T-shirt. I'm not sure they had T-shirts in the Victorian era, but you know, you know what I mean. And so, when, as he stood to address all of these Baptist ministers... Um, people were wondering how he would address them and what, how he would encourage them and what he would speak on. And as he, he rose to speak, and I can only imagine from this picture that he must have been a fairly forbidding presence <laughs> as, as he rose to speak. Um, he said, the subject of my talk with you today is this. Martha has it all her own way now. <coughs> That was his reflection on the church that had bent over backwards to do mission to its culture. That activism now ruled the roost. And the defining mark of discipleship, although he didn't use that word, was now what you did and what the church did. And that the contemplative, worshipful Mary no longer was a part of church life. In fact, he said, if I were to go into one of our churches today and ask that ancient question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? I would undoubtedly receive the ancient answer. Sir, we did not even know there was a Holy Spirit. That was his concern for a church that had given itself to mission and given itself to activism. That something had got, something crucial, something vital, something central had got lost. And that's why I want to reclaim the primacy in discipleship for the relationship that we each have with the living God in the Spirit. When we've talked about discipleship before, we've often talked about one of these two things. Discipleship, as I've listened to people talk about discipleship, wherever they're coming from, either it seems to gravitate around activity, things that we're expected to do, whether that's in terms of personal behaviour or Christian service, or around belief. So until a few years ago, and possibly still today, if you look at many courses that market themselves as discipleship courses and look at the content of those courses, basically they're about believing the right things. Typically 12 sessions on God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit, prayer, scripture, witnessing the devil. So there's a kind of mini theology course uh, packaged up as discipleship, a discipleship course. And my contention is, and my plea is, that somehow, whilst we recognise the importance of activism and the importance of belief, we don't start there when we think about our own discipleship. But rather we start with this, what's often the missing dimension of relationship. Our relationship with the living God. I've been confronted... Uh, for quite a while now, uh, with what Jesus said in John chapter 17, that famous prayer where Jesus prayed for the unity of his followers, and how he started that prayer, as John records it in John chapter 17. You know the words, whether or not you'll be able to see them, I don't know, but 
These are the words. After Jesus had spoken, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The quality of life that we inherit as Christians, eternal life, the life of the age to come, is centred on a radical new relationship with the living God. It's that we might know him. Not know about him, but know him. That's why Jesus gave himself, in order that we could enjoy the same intimate relationship with the Father that he had. And so I I may be teaching my proverbial grandmothers to suck eggs at this point, but I refuse to apologise for it, uh, grandparents, because I myself... I'm a grandparent, and I need to be reminded of this truth all too often. But actually, my discipleship is about a living, personal relationship with the living God in the power of the Spirit. Because I know I can make it about all sorts of other things in my own strength. I can be very happy learning knowledge about God. I find that quite fulfilling. I can be quite fulfilled serving others in the name of God. But I've always got McLaren, Alexander McLaren at the back of my mind. He haunts me with the thought that Mary needs to have a look in here as well. The scriptures themselves are full of the encouragement to God's people to long for more of him. The Psalms often contain these great outbursts of longing for God. You know many of them. As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you, O my God. Psalm 63, which the ancient church fathers said should be prayed every day, it's so important for your spiritual health, starts with these words. O God, you are my God, and I long for you. And I love that balance that's contained in those first two lines. There's an assurance. It's not that I don't know God or God doesn't know me, that I'm not one of his. Oh God, you are my God. But I long for you. There's, there's more of you. There's, there's a distance I don't like. There's a closeness that I, I, I long for, I yearn for. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, made the contention that we're far too easily satisfied. Far too easily satisfied. He used the image of children playing in the mud in a slum, refusing the invitation to go to the seaside because they had mud here after all. If that makes any sense to you. It's his little attempt at saying we're far too easily satisfied. And the scriptures are full of this. Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. There's a trajectory right through scripture of the honourable status of being a desiring, longing person for more of God. Quite remarkably to me, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, as you know, was just an incredible thinker, missionary, evangelist, miracle worker, church planter, you know, amazing. He's like Melky on steroids. He's just, uh, just amazing. At the end of his life, writing to Philippi, what does he say? from his prison cell, to encourage the other Christians. He doesn't recount all the glories of his ministry, all the successes, the miracles, the healings, the conversions, the churches. What he says from his prison cell, this is incidentally taken from his Facebook page, it's an authentic authentic selfie, um, one of the very first selfies ever taken. Um, Paul, at this stage, towards the end of his life, most commentators would think, towards the end of his life, said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. And then he goes on to say, I want to know Christ. Hang on a minute, Paul. So what was all those last few years about? What about all the, all the teaching and, and letter writing and church planting and, and debating, evangelizing? But Paul knew there was always more of Christ. To know, I want to know Christ, 
to share in his suffering, to share in his resurrection. There's more of Christ yet for me to know. And I'm not here to do anything other than just to sort of provoke a few thoughts tonight. But I do want to provoke a little bit of self-reflection along the way and to encourage us all to keep asking that question. Have I become too easily satisfied? If my relationship with God was an item on the weather forecast, how would it be described? Deadly calm, torrid, gale force, foggy. Where is the actual living relationship with God? What was the last thing he said to me? When did I last feel his touch? How easy do I find it to imagine his closeness? Because these are the things, if actually at the centre of the gospel is knowing God, and if we ourselves just know about him, rather than know him, I would suggest we have nothing much to share, other than a package of truths. When I grew up, um, some people say I'm still doing that, but, but when, I, when I was younger, um, I might have mentioned this before, um, my, my father was a, a tractor driver on a farm, and uh, so we lived in, on a farm, obviously, that's kind of where it goes. And, and as I grew up on the farm, um, the farm was owned by someone called Harold Bamberg. Harold Bamberg was a very wealthy man, it was a very big farm in the middle of Hampshire, and uh, it, he, he lived in a big house. Harold Bamberg lived in a big house, that's what we called it that. It was very sort of Downton Abbey-ish, sort of, you know, my dad used to doff his cap to Harold Bamberg when he drove past in his hand um, and uh, he lived, Hal Bamberg lived in the big house but he was very generous and uh, we had free firewood we had pheasants all through the shooting season we had a free house to live in we had free milk from the, from the dairy he was a very generous man was Harold Bamberg he ran an airline called Eagle Airways which subsequently was bought out by BEA British European Airways um, not that you need to know that but anyway other than that he, 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 was, he was kind he was generous um, but it occurred to me not long ago, bizarrely, I don't know why it's occurred to me, that I never actually met him. I knew a lot about him, and I lived off his benefits. But I never actually knew him. I never went inside the big house. And I never heard him say, David, I'm pleased to see you. What brought you here? And I wonder sometimes in my Christian life, there's a kind of an echo of something of that in my walk with God. I know a lot about him. I know where he lives. I know he's been very good to me. And I know I live off his benefits. But the last time I heard him say, David, I'm so pleased to see you. What are you doing here? Actually, sometimes feels like that. It's a long time ago. And I wonder for any of us here tonight, as we kind of start this reflection on discipleship, whether there's something to, to reflect on, on there. It would be easy to come and give a list of things to do or not to do, activities we can get immersed in. But I don't want to start there. I want to start here because I think this is where discipleship starts with Jesus coming up to us and says, drop everything and follow me. Come walk with me. And if you walk with me closely enough, you'll learn how to be a different you and become a fisher for persons. William Booth, one of the activists of the 19th century who founded the Salvation Army, um, you may know of him. He, in the beard competition, wins over, over uh, McLaren, uh, definitely. Um, far more able beard. Um, but the Salvation Army, of course, are known for their activism. They're known for their social concern. They're known for the things that Booth initiated in the 19th century, reaching out to street people in the East End of London and orphans and, 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 and street women, all kinds of stuff, fantastic stuff. And towards the end of his life, when his beard was of a suitable length for him to say these sage things, um, he, 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 he wrote this. This is especially true of the spiritual life of which we're speaking. If you want an active, generous, fighting, daredevil core of officers, able and willing to drive hell before it, that core must be possessed and that fully by the spirit of life. Nothing else can effectively take its place. 
He went on, no education, learning, Bible knowledge, theology, social amusements, or anything of the kind will be a satisfactory substitute. The core that seeks to put any of these things in the place of life will find them a mockery, a delusion and a snare, will find them to be only the wraps and trappings of death itself. Head away with words, the Victorians. But you can see the heart of his concern for the activist movement that he founded. It's that actually the activism must flow out of a deeper spiritual life. Another person that I like this news, A.W. Tozer. Have you heard of A.W. Tozer? Canadian. Um, have you ever heard him speak? He, sa- he sounds like Eeyore. <laughs> he does. He's the most unlikely voice to kind of talk about spiritual renewal. I can do an impression, but I won't because it embarrasses me. It always, always morphs into Birmingham after a while. I don't know. Every time I do an impression, it becomes Birmingham by the end of it. So, but anyway, A.W. Tozer said the problem is that we create workers before we've created worshippers. And it's not that we don't want workers, but if work doesn't come out of worship, or to use Booth's language, if activity doesn't come out of the spirit of life possessing us. Or to use McLaren's language, if Mary doesn't have a look in while Martha's calling the shots, then our good news will not gain traction. Because it's the good news of a relationship with the living God. A God who is here and can make a difference to people's lives today. I say this quite often, I don't want to be misunderstood, but we are not, I may have said it last time, I say it so often, we're not a dead God club. We're not thinking back to past glories and things that God did or Jesus did. Resurrection has happened. Christ is alive. And I know, and I could tell you, you know, all of the reasons why in our society the gospel shouldn't gain traction, why people won't believe. I know all of the arguments about post-modernity and all of that stuff. But I want to believe that actually the gospel and Jesus as the good news transcends those cultural barriers. I want to believe that we don't live in a part of the world where Jesus can't do his work. Now you can say that's naive or denying reality, but, but, but that's my contention. That's, that's the belief I want to operate out of. I don't do it very well, but that's what I'm continually trying to do. A few years ago, a funny thing happened in Durham. You ever been to Durham? Yeah, it's a lovely place. The diocese, the Anglican diocese in which Durham sits, did some research and they discovered that roughly half of the Anglican churches had shrunk and half of the Anglican churches had grown by approximately the same proportion that the half that had shrunk had shrunk. Now some smart people when they hear that think, well obviously people left one set of churches and went to the other set of churches. Uh, that wasn't what happened, okay, so just get that one out of your head. Um, there was a strange thing going on. There was significant growth in some churches and not in others. Um, there was decline in others. And so they did some research into why this would be. What was going on in the churches that were growing? And it's quite a sophisticated piece of research. And um, they kind of did all of the uh, different processes of, of research methodologies and so on. And they came up with a number of, of, of characteristics that seemed to be true of all of the growing churches. There were seven characteristics that they kind of manipulated out of the statistics that the research threw up. And a man called Robert Warren wrote a book called um, The Healthy Church's Handbook uh, on the basis of those seven characteristics. But the first one, and they put it first deliberately, was a characteristic they called that these churches were energised by faith. They said at the heart of these churches and their members is a reality about their awareness of the presence, goodness, and love of God. Faith, they said, is the fuel on which these churches run. I think that's, that's worth paying attention to. In our culture, in our country, when churches begin to grow, it's a relatively rare thing, as I pointed out last week. And of the characteristics, there seemed to be this, this belief that that God is alive and well and doing stuff and knowable and powerful and, and able to, to make a difference here. That's why we do what we do. 
not because we've got some great skills that we could roll out into our community, but because God is here and God can make a difference. It's a different mindset. So my first contention to you is that discipleship needs to be rebalanced. I say rebalanced, not trying to replace activism or belief, but rebalanced. And to embrace... Oh, what happened then? Too many things happened. Oh, there we go. Okay, right. See, it doesn't happen on my screen. It happens on your screen. That's why I got confused. The, the, it's about a, a relationship. I want to break that down just briefly into two more thoughts. Sometimes when we talk about being in a relationship with Jesus, we talk in terms of following. WWJD. JD. Trying to act like Jesus would act. Imitation. But discipleship is about trying to live the Jesus life. It's about following. That is true. We are to be imitators of Christ. But it's only half a truth. Because the other part of that relationship is about filling. It's about receiving. It's about impartation. It's about crying out to God that he would give us something which enables us to follow. When was the last time we did that? How often do we make that? possibility in our churches, in our small groups to actually pray for another that God might give something that we can't obtain for ourselves now I want to take a step back before I just move on one more bit and then I'll shut up and you can talk about some of these things <clears throat> I, want to, I want to say something else that I think is really important around this that the way to grow in the love of God is to understand what it means that God loves you Otherwise, seeking to grow in God's love just becomes another piece of activism. Another straining of the soul. The Bible says that we only love him because he first loved us. And if we do want to respond to this thought of growing in our love for God, there is no better way to do it than to keep reminding ourselves of just how much God loves us. And one of the reasons we find it hard to love God is because sometimes some of us perhaps find it hard to believe that God does love us and longs for us and desires us Charles Maxey you can look at this picture now I've taken it away from you twice I'm not going to take it away third time uh, Ch- Charles Maxey have you, ever, have you ever been to um, St Gumbel's um, in London Holy Trinity Brompton um, you'll know that um, at the front Sorry, John, I've got you recording this. Forget that bit. Um, uh, at the front of Holy Trinity Brompton, on the platform, there is a large life-sized sculpture. Bronze sculpture. It's impressive. It's lovely. It's by a man called Charles Maxey, who's a, a member at uh, Holy Trinity Brompton. And he's a bit obsessed with the story of the prodigal son. And he carved this image of the return of the prodigal. And uh, that's a kind of a... Uh, something similar, it's, it's one of his drawings it's similar to the, the bronze that's there and the thing about that that I love is the contrast that he's made between the arms of the son and the arms of the father the returning son who's struggling to believe that his father could possibly accept him or love him or want him and the arms of the father which ruggedly embrace the son who has no hope that he is embraceable, that he's lovable. And something about that image I, I find very, very helpful in reflecting on God's love for me because often I do struggle to believe that God would want anything to do with me or could, could, could you know, single me out for his affection. And yet unless we believe that God, not that God loves the world, although that's true, John 3.16, but that God loves me and he's passionate about me. His lovely verse in the book Song of Songs says, I belong to my lover and he desires me. For time immemorial almost, the, the Christian theologians have taken the Song of Songs to be a kind of metaphor of our relationship with God. I think it's about sexuality as well. But also there's this kind of metaphorical imagery around our relationship with God. And that verse is, is striking, isn't it? If it's true of us, I belong to my lover 
and he desires me. To love God, heart, soul, mind and strength. That's the first commandment. So, let's have a little think about that around our tables. That first thought, what does it mean to me to hunger for more of God? And in our church, how are people helped to develop hunger for God? So none of these questions are supposed to make us squirm or anything, but they're intended to make us reflect on some of the things I've been, been saying around this first element of discipleship, seeking growth in God's love. So, go to it, have a little chat. Okay. I'm always interested to know kind of what questions and observations are being shaped in those conversations. So, does anybody like to just um, ask a question, make a comment? Feedback a little bit about what you've just been talking about. Don't be shy. I'm not putting you on the spot, but it'd be interesting for me to hear some of the things that you're thinking about in this particular area. So, sorry, yes, Phil. So the, the importance of kind of interaction with others who share that hunger, that, that, that's critical, yeah. And in the fourth of our sessions, that's the one thing we're going to focus in on, so it's interesting you flag it up now. But it's very hard to sustain that by ourselves, so that's, that's a helpful contribution. Anybody else going in a different direction? Yes? 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 So we can be inspired to be hungry for more by putting ourselves alongside people who either have more or who themselves aspire to more. So the importance of mentoring, I suppose, is a word we might use today, or just example, the inspiration of example. Who do we hang out with? Let's put it another way. Yeah, thank you. Good points. Okay, well, I hope you had a really good conversation about the football. I think Man United are doing okay, but that's, uh, <coughs> that's fine. I don't know about you on the spot. Let's, let's just move on a, a bit more. So, these are the first two dimensions. We've just been thinking a, bit, a little bit about the first dimension there of desire and hunger. Incidentally, if I can just say uh, one more thing about that um, before moving on. When we become spiritually hungry, the danger is that we, we kind of think or pray ourselves into sort of despair and depression because we spend a lot of time focusing on what we haven't got. Um, there's a very helpful piece of advice in the book of Philippians where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving give your request to God. And that with thanksgiving is really important in this issue of hunger and desire. Because, as I said earlier from Psalm 63, there is a lot to thank God for. Oh God, you are my God. And I long for more of you. And somehow in our prayer, we need to kind of embrace the gratitude for what we do have and we do experience and God has done and God is for us and God has promised to us with that longing, those petitions and those, those desires. Otherwise, um, we, we, we pray ourselves into despair <laughs> on, on this issue because the truth is, I believe, there will always be more of God to know. And so there will always be that longing um, there. So the second, the second thing then is 
kind of moving on to answer the question I've just begun to answer, how, how do we begin to satisfy that hunger and, and that desire? It's one thing to have it, how do we begin to, to, to satisfy it? I want first to make this simple claim that what we're talking about here is not a kind of an introverted spirituality. What we're talking about here are the roots which an effective missional life draw on. Um, Jesus is a fantastic example of this. But time and again, we're told, Luke tells us in, in, in Luke 5, the crowds were pursuing Jesus. But, he says, Jesus frequently withdrew to lonely places to pray. Jesus knew that if he wasn't paying attention to his father and reminding himself of who he was and what his father's voice was, he, he couldn't risk doing mission. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. There's, there's something that flows out of inter- intimacy which shapes our activity. Yeah? And certainly for Jesus, it happened all the time. There's that really telling story in the middle of Mark chapter 1 where Jesus has begun his public ministry. You know how Mark doesn't waste time on angels and donkeys and nativity and all that sort of stuff. I love Mark. There's no Christmas in Mark. I'm not a great fan. I'm not a great fan of Christmas. I have a lot of trouble in Thornby Baptist Church as a recent incomer because they all love Christmas. I'm with Cromwell on Christmas, I must admit. But, but there we go. <laughs> Leaving that to one side, I should never have mentioned it. And I can't even remember now why I did Oh yeah, Mark, Mark's Gospel. No, 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 sorry. Forget that. Mark chapter 1, where incidentally there is no Christmas narrative. Um, Mark gets straight into the business of Jesus and who he is. And this is the good news of Jesus. Boom, 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 boom. This is what he did. And one of the things that he did in Mark chapter 1 is that he started healing and teaching. And the word got out and people came from all over to be healed by the healer and to be taught by the teacher. And Jesus was kind of surrounded. They came from all around and filled up the village square. And, and Jesus healed and, and taught. Um, what appears to happen is that overnight the town kind of fills up, words got out, people have come from all over, the disciples wake up the next morning, they look for the healer and teacher and he's nowhere to be found, which is a bit disconcerting at that stage in their education. So they look for Jesus and Mark informs us that they find Jesus coming back from the place of prayer. And you can imagine, this is the David Lawrence version of Mark 1, so don't look for all of these words in the NRSV, but... But they, they, they see Jesus coming back and, and they must say something like, thank goodness you're here because all these needy people have turned up we don't know what to do with them. We didn't know where you were. What do you mean walking out on us? We're, we're glad you're back. And Jesus says, we must go to the villages down the road because that's where I've come. What? A handful of people to teach and to heal? You sure, Jesus? Doesn't the need constitute the call? Have you heard that phrase? Well, for Jesus, the call was heard by withdrawing to a lonely place of prayer and then coming back to the place of everyday life and making the tough call about what his father was doing. He wasn't called to be the local miracle worker. He was called to go on a journey to Jerusalem to give his life for the sins of the world. And being trapped in northern Galilee was not part of the plan. And he had to withdraw to be with his father to be reminded of what the plan was so that when he came back to everyday life he knew what to give his time to and what to walk away from to make the tough calls. But that came out of intimacy. That shaping of Jesus' mission came out of intimacy with his father. And so what we're talking about when we're talking about seeking growth in God's love and using spiritual disciplines it's not kind of an escapist Christian thing. It's actually the foundation which are missionary life, by everyday life the point of it all, being sent into the world as Jesus was sent this is the wellspring on which we draw when we do that this is what keeps us on track this is what shapes our life, this is what tells us what to say, what not to say, where to go, what not to do who to sit next to, who not to sit next to this is how we do mission it's by immersing ourselves in intimacy and Jesus had that kind of fantastic balance of engagement and withdrawal Engagement and withdrawal. Nights on the mountain with Father. Days in the villages and the towns and the temple 
and gazing. That rhythm of life. See, we're, we, you know the WWJD thing, don't you? What, what, what would Jesus do? Do you know that in America they, they, they did a spoof of that, thinking they were being very clever. Uh, some car manufacturers did a thing, what would Jesus drive? WWJD. And uh, they, they put that out there and, and, and people sort of texted in and, and, and wrote in. And a lot of people said, a Honda. And they couldn't work out why a lot of people were saying Honda. So they did a bit of digging behind the Honda response and realised that it's because in John's Gospel it says, Jesus said, I do not speak of my own accord. <laughs> in another place it says, Jesus and the disciples were all in one accord. So, you know. Anyway, let's put that with Cromwell and Christmas and, and move on. <clears throat> um, WWJD. In one sense, what would Jesus do is, for those of us that are a little bit biblically informed, it's not a hard question to answer. He comes across a seriously ill person, what would Jesus do? He'd heal this person. We know that. Matthew tells us. He healed all those that were bought to him. Uh, we're in a pretty rough sea crossing. And we're struggling and a bit scared. WWJD. We know what Jesus would do. He would tell the wind and the waves to stop. Or he would come walking across the North Sea to greet us. WWJD only takes us so far. It's a good question, a helpful question, certainly in terms of imitation. But it only takes us so far. The question is not what did Jesus do, but how did Jesus do what he did? <laughs> how did Jesus do what he did? But then the cop out answer is well, because he was the Son of God. But actually, I don't think theologically that's a tenable answer. Because he was the Son of God. If if the distinctive of Jesus doing what he did was because he was the Son of God, then we have nothing to imitate. I only do, he says, what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. Jesus did what he did by constantly drawing on the resources of heaven. Moving under an open heaven. Knowing what it means as the son of man, the human one, to draw on the divine resources of heaven. I believe that's true. And so, back to our diagram. You'll be fed up with this. This is the last time you might see it, so make the most of it. Relationship. I shan't press too many buttons this time. It's about imitation and following. It's about filling and receiving the impartation of the Spirit. But it's also about our application to those processes of formation that Jesus himself applied himself to. How do we live the Jesus life? Not just what is it, but how do we do it? How do we prepare for it? Dallas Willard, who I introduced you to last time, said this, we cannot behave on the spot as Jesus did if in the rest of our time we live as everybody else does. Good quote. We must learn how to follow his preparations, the disciplines for life in God's rule that enabled him to receive his father's constant and effective support while doing his will. I couldn't have put it better, which is why I've used the quote. I love that. We cannot behave on the spot that Jesus did. Because in one of his books, the beginning of one of his books, he tells a little story about a boy who's an American boy. That's what I was American. I was surprised to discover he was a man. Because the only Dallas I ever knew was a woman. And so I went for a conference once where Dallas Willard was speaking, expecting a woman to stand up and address me. And a man stood up. And there was a kind of a, kind of a temporary cognitive dysfunctional thing going on there. But anyway, he is an American male. And he tells this story about an American boy who's got a baseball idol. And the baseball-loving little boy learns how to do everything that he sees on the television the baseball idol doing. He learns how to adopt the pose with the bat, how to chew the gum, how to hold the, the glove... I know nothing about baseball, as you were beating to hell. But he learned how to do everything that the idol did, which was great until one day he went outside and somebody threw a ball at him. And he knew how to strike the pose, but he hadn't trained actually how to swing the bat and hit, hit the ball. And Dallas Willard uses that as an illustration of the point that he's making in this, in this quote, that we can learn how to strike the pose, WWJD, but if we haven't actually prepared ourselves to hit the ball 
then all we'll be doing is posing. We cannot behave on the spot as Jesus did if in the rest of our lives we live as everybody else does. And throughout the ages, and for Jesus himself, these have been described as the classic disciplines of the Christian life. We're nervous about the word discipline often. Often we equate it to punishment, but you're a learned bunch. You'll know the root of the word discipline is... Okay, maybe you're not as learned as all that. It's, it's, a... it's, it's the Latin word disco, which does not mean I dance. Okay. It means I learn. A, di- a discipline is how you learn. The disciplines of life, whatever they are, are the ways that we learn how to do something. And so the spiritual disciplines are not things that God has concocted to punish us, nor are they things that we do in in order that in and of themselves somehow they please God. But they're things that we do in order to learn to do something, habits we form. John Wesley, back in the 18th century, he didn't call them spiritual disciplines. He had a label that I much prefer. He called them means of grace. Lovely phrase. The means of grace. These are the things that we can do. They're means to an end that we can use in order to receive the grace that only God can give. They're means of grace. He called them channels through which God pours his love into our hearts. One of the risks with the spiritual disciplines or the means of grace is that they become ends in themselves. To pray is a good thing in and of itself because we've prayed. To read scripture is a good thing in and of itself. Wesley and the great saints of the ages would would contend with that claim. They are means to something else. I'm going to quote up a minute from Richard Foster who who substantiates the same thought. that these Just to say I've prayed today means nothing if you haven't met God through that prayer. Just to say I've read scripture today means nothing if I haven't heard God speak to me through scripture. That was George Muller's habit, wasn't it? To read scripture every day and keep reading until you feel God's actually said something to you. Not just tick the box that you've done the daily bread thing. Incidentally, please do read daily bread because I write for them occasionally and I'm dependent on your support. (laughs) So I'm not knocking daily bread. Far be it for me to do that. But what I am saying is that any of these disciplines of the Christian life must not become ends in themselves. And for me, there, there are a few very core disciplines. There's a long list. I'm sure some of you have seen or even read Richard Foster's book on the, on the disciplines of the Christian life. It's a fantastic classic. If you haven't read it for a while, go back and read some of it again. It's a fantastic inspiration to use some of these disciplines of, of, of the Christian life. Chief amongst the disciplines is the discipline of prayer. It's kind of the umbrella discipline almost. It's, it's something which... Jesus, again, as I said before, gave himself to... If ever there was a human being who one might think doesn't really need to pray very much, surely you might argue it would be the Son of God. And yet, in all of Scripture, it's probably true that Jesus is recorded as praying more than any other character in the, in the, in the whole sweep of the Scripture narrative. I find that deeply challenging. Deeply challenging. And this is Dallas Willard's point on the previous screen. How can I expect to live the Jesus life if I don't actually do what Jesus did to prepare for the Jesus life? And I've not yet spoken about these things to a room full of Christians that haven't smiled and nodded and said, yeah, prayer is really important. Totally agree with that. I'm not going to argue with that one. Scripture. Yeah, of course, really important. Fasting. I'm not so sure about that one, but... uh, But these disciplines that Jesus seemed to expect, he didn't say, if you fast, but when you fast... This is how you do it. These things that Jesus seemed to imply create space to encounter God. They create space to hear. Space to listen. Most of us would nod at them enthusiastically and say, that's fantastic. And yet how many of us, if we're honest, really struggle to sustain prayer-filled, scripture-soaked, fasting-threaded lives? They're really hard, aren't they? It's really hard to keep doing that. And yet, if these are the core disciplines of the Christian life, if these are the places where we meet with God, we've got to find ways of re-engaging with them. I need to do that. We all need to do that. I'm tired of running churches where we can do it all ourselves. 
I really am tired of that. I want churches where God does stuff that no one can explain. A, a Catholic writer called Mary Ann Lengel, I think something like that, said, our lives shouldn't make sense if God didn't exist. That's, that's a challenging thought, isn't it? Most of our churches make great sense without the presence of God. I'm troubled by that. I'm not criticizing Kendra, you're probably the exception. But churches I'm part of, I know, and it's partly because of me and what I think church is and how I shape the church life, despite myself, that a lot of it makes perfect sense as some kind of human institution with a bit of singing thrown in. Where is the gap? Where is the lack? I think this crying out to God, spending time on our knees, longing for him, listening to his voice, making the vital connection between the roots of intimacy and the activity of mission. This seems to me to be incontrovertibly a missing piece in the Western activist church. You can disagree. Uh, you're quite to do that. I may be wrong, but that's my perspective. I've been through endless seminars over the years, endless training courses, read endless books about how to do church, how to do mission, how to do this and how to do that, and this barely ever gets a mention. I lecture on a course in so-called missional leadership, and very few of the missional leadership books talk about how to develop a deep prayer life, how to receive more of the Spirit. There's loads of other good stuff in them. I'm not knocking them. I'd be out of a job if I did. But there's a huge gap in lots of them, and this is the gap. Richard Foster, again, I said I'd put the quote up from him. He said this, By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They only get us to the place where something can be done. Prayer gets us to the place where we encounter God. Scripture gets us to the place where God can speak. Fasting gets us to the place where we're empty of ourselves and longing for more of him. Actually feeling that in our bodies. Not just articulating it in our psyche. There's something about the spiritual disciplines that get us to a place where God can do stuff. Some, of them some people don't like this idea because it sounds a bit like activism and we're saved by grace and this all sounds like works to some people. And you know, Oh, you foolish Galatians, what has bewitched you? You started so well and now you're turning back and all of that stuff. And yet scripture is full of these injunctions to do something. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Draw near to God so that he'll draw near to you. Ask, seek, knock. You do not have because you do not ask. You, know, you can find your own verses. That's just a, a sample of, of the injunction that Scripture gives us to do something. In Philippians, there's these famous words. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I'm sure you've noted that before and reflected on the, 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 the vital balance there is there between working and seeking, but actually acknowledging that what really is worth happening is going to happen because God is working in us. And it's even God that's energising the seeking. One of the signs that God's at work in your life is that you're aware that he's not at work in your life. The very hunger is a gift from God. The very desire is a gift from God. So, in a world where we're told less than a third of evangelical Christians set aside a substantial period of time for prayer each day. And a substantial period certainly means more than seven minutes. So it's not like ours. I think we need to be confronted with this challenge. I don't know what we're going to do with it. And whether we're going to duck, whether I'm going to duck again. But I... I yeah, I'm just waiting for you. That's from my, my observation. If we want to be disciples... Apprentices of Jesus. We've got to learn to do not just what he did, but how he did what he did. That's what apprenticeships do. Wesley, final Wesley quote for you. Can you have too many Wesley quotes? Probably. But here's one more. It was a common saying among the Christians of the primitive church. The soul and the body make a man. The spirit and discipline make a Christian implying that none could be real Christians without the help of Christian discipline. But if this be so, 
Is it any wonder that we find so few Christians? For where is Christian discipline? That was Wesley's observation of the 18th century Anglican church in which he was a minister. I wonder if it isn't true of some of our churches today as well. May not be. I may be painting too black a picture. So here's your chance to have a chat about that. Back around the tables. How do you respond to some of those ideas of spiritual discipline? Do you find them helpful, unhelpful? Have I got it wrong? And notice in each of these, there's a personal question and there's a church question. I would love you to have a go at both, um, if you felt you could. How does or could the church support the practice of the discipline? So just about another four or five minutes around the tables, and then we're virtually done. Okay, I'm going to interrupt. Otherwise we'll finish late, and that's not a good thing. Well, after the success of the last round of feedback, (laughs) I am going to be undaunted, (laughs) brass-necked, and ask the question again, is is there any... (laughs) I, mean, I, could, I could be very school teachers about this and go around, but I don't want to do that. You know, if there's nothing to say, there's nothing to say, that's fine. But is there anything that, that anybody kind of wants the whole group to either hear or ask or share or whatever? Out of that little set of conversations that you just had around the table. What were your thoughts about the place of spiritual disciplines? Too obvious to worth be worth discussing? I think they take time. Okay. And I think it helps when you're tired. <laughs> <laughs> to get that time. I see what you mean. So you mean it takes time, you know, because you have to carve out time somewhere. Yeah, you, you, I don't think you do very much in five minutes. But you might have half an hour. Yeah. Or, or an hour. Yeah. It's only better than you, but I'll be with you. I'll yeah. be with you. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we live in the so-called cash-rich, time-poor culture, don't we? And so that's putting the finger on a very important issue and I think sometimes it's about being creative with the rhythms that we can adopt in different seasons of life um, so you're in a particular season of life there's a particular rhythm that works for you I don't think we should get hung up on the daily hour or whatever but I think for some of us it might be I mean when, when my wife and I had when we had small children at home and you know, life was busy and I was travelling around the southwest doing this and the other we used to just release one another for, for half a day at a time so I would have the kids and she would go off and spend time with God and, and we'd reciprocate you know. and so we'd, we'd find rhythms that worked for us in the different seasons that we were in and not become slaves to some kind of supposed ideal which is totally unworkable and we'll give up on after three weeks because it's unworkable um, yeah that's a nice ringtone <laughs> so, don't worry, no one noticed. Any, <laughs> any, yes. We we, uh, we had the conclusion that um, uh, we it's something we have to do, you know, and that it, it is part of being disciplined as a person. And, and yes, we recognise that we are short of time, but actually we waste quite a lot of time. And uh, you know, certainly, you know, we in our household spend quite a lot of time watching YouTube videos and you know being on the internet. That's what we. And, and it's a question of how we use our um, and uh, so um, it, it's, and it goes back to the first question actually about um, hunger, mm. uh, because actually um, we can make ourselves hungry by practicing it, by mm. doing it, and, and, and actually it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's a different thing, you know, because physical hunger, you're hungry because you're eating mm. and you desire food, but actually you can make yourself desire God by being disciplined and by seeking him. Mm. And actually, we talk, talked about fasting as well, and I, I never really sort of um, uh, realised what you said, you know, by, by being empty, then that gives you that sort of physical desire of hunger, which you can direct mm. as a hunger for God. Mm. And I thought that was really, really helpful. Mm. And so we talked about time, and Richard is, um, you know, he's actually carved out time by doing the course of Tennessee, because, you know, Richard is really busy, but actually, that's, that's your. I <laughs> 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 don't say you sport it now. <laughs> yeah. 
I think, yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks for sharing that. And honesty as well in there. I've got a contention which you, again, can disagree with, but that actually we always find time to do the things that we really want to do. In the main, I think that's true. And so the question is not, is there time? The question is, is there intention? And if you remember the acronym that I put on the screen last week from Dallas Willard again, the V-I-M, the VIM thing, he said, we need a vision of what a, dis- a disciple looks like. We need the intention to follow through on what's required, and we need the means. And that middle thing is what you're talking about, the, in- the intention, really. And, um, yeah, I don't, you know, the last thing we should do is to generate guilt, because guilt is a very bad motivator for, for Christian discipline. But nonetheless, I do think we need to accept what you're saying, that, that there are things in our lives that we choose to do, which we could choose not to do without great cost and without great loss, that could create some space. I think it was, um, was it uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu who said, I'm so busy, I cannot afford not to pray for at least two hours a day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm too busy not to pray. Yes. Yeah. Any other final comment? Thank you for that. Really helpful. Any other final comment? That's really helpful. And of course, Sabbath is a form of fasting. It's actually choosing not to be the centre of the world for a period of time. Not to imagine that if I don't do stuff, the world might stop. Um, and, and our culture is mad. And to conform to a sick society is one sure way to become sick. Um, and, and so the, the, the hyperactivism, even leisure, is described as an industry. <laughs> And to, be, to engage with leisure, you need to do an activity. And when you stop and think about that for a minute, you realise this is madness. The Benedictines had, had a lovely sort of balance in their day between work, prayer, rest and recreation, which is properly understood as recreation, something I do that recreates me. And we've conflated rest and recreation and think because we have a day off doing activity, we'll feel rested. Well, of course, you don't. You can have a day of activity and be very pleasurably recreated, but you feel quite tired at the end of it. You know, so, so I think there's a, there's a lot in what you're saying, really, that, that I think we need to pay attention to. And, and what a great gift to be part of a faith tradition where the deity commands you to do nothing for a whole day a week. <laughs> I mean, at one level, it sounds like, who wouldn't want to be part of this? You know? In our hyperactive, manic society to be commanded from on high. Now, of course, we could have a debate about how enduring the Sabbath legislation is and all of that, but there's wisdom in what you're saying. Even if we come at it from the angle of fasting and not from Sabbath, whichever way we come at it, I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying. And, of course, I've put up some of what I consider to be the core disciplines, but as I have said, there are many disciplines. And an athlete in training would discipline themselves in the area where they want to grow. So they work on different areas of their body. Um, so it may be that we need to grow in the area of rest. So we might need to engage that discipline whilst we learn that habit, um, for example. Yeah. Anyway, I sort of wouldn't keep you late. I've just done that. Um, so just to summarise again, and this, this final slide, you've seen these before, you'll see these icons coming up a number of times. We've been looking tonight at these two nearest to me. I would see these as the foundational roots of the Christian 
of a Christian disciple's life, seeking growth in God's love and using those disciplines to seek more of God and to listen to him. Next time we're going to be thinking about what it means to be an everyday missionary. I've used the phrase a few times, but what, what does that mean? How does that work? And for us to talk honestly about how it works for us, uh, where we are. Uh, that's not next week, incidentally. It's the week after next. Something else exciting is happening next week, which I know nothing about. And then the fourth of our sessions is, 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 is the really important thing in the middle there, and something quite distinct about the way I believe we need to relate together as disciples if we're going to kind of help one another make all this, this work. So that's where we're going. Bless you for being here and engaging and talking about whatever you talked about around the tables. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Let me pray as we close. Father, we do love you. But we love it that you love us. We're humbled and staggered that you should set your affection on people like us. And you should declare from heaven over our lives, you're my son, and I'm really pleased with you. You're my daughter, and I'm thrilled with you. Before we've done anything, before we deserve anything, that you spoke affirmation and love into our lives, and we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to see that love coming towards us, that you'd open our hearts to receive more of that spirit that makes your love come alive within us. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with something which transforms us and gives us something to offer to the folks that we meet in everyday life. May our roots go deep in you so that our branches can reach ever further into your world. Father, we thank you for being here with us tonight. We trust and believe that so. And I pray that if you've spoken to any of us here tonight, that that word would not dissipate or disappear as we walk out the door. Nor would it disappear as we speak tonight, but it would niggle and grow and work within us until such time as it bears fruit in our lives, in our behaviour, in our attitudes, in our routines. Whatever you want to say, Father, say it and say it loud and clear so that we can't miss it. We bless you. We love you. And we crave your presence, even as we go now. We pray we'd be aware of your presence with us. And that it might become an ever-increasing awareness, Lord, as this week goes by. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.